Wrestling with Theology is a weekly Bible study that seeks to equip you to wrestle with the theologies that surround us in our everyday life. Through these studies, your faith in Christ will be strengthened through the Scriptures and the Lutheran Confessions. Join Pastor Minton for these next few minutes as he helps you get ready to wrestle with theology. once again for Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton, standing here in the confessional corner as we look at the last part of the confutation of the Augsburg Confession. This week we're going to look at the things that the Roman theologians could not accept from the Augsburg Confession. So we'll be looking at Article 4, then Articles 20, through 28. Article 4, they simply say that if you take out the value of human merit, you are nothing more than a Manichaean, which the church fought against even as far back as the second century. Now, if you remember this from when I went through the Augsburg Confession several months ago, I went through Article 4 through 14 all in one. 25 minute span. But their confutation of Article 4 led it to be the longest article in the Apology. So, whereas, yes, I did 11 articles in one span, we're looking at easily two and a half to three years of monthly podcasts on the Apology Article 4. So, just to warn you, that's coming up in starting in a few months so that's article four a couple of little lines in the confession their confutation that says nope you're just manichaeans longest article in the confession and melanchthon goes on for quite a while with his confutation of the confutation and defense of the biblical truth because as he states the doctrine of justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. So we move in the rejections to Article 20. And really, Article 20, the first sentence summarizes everything. They go on for another couple of pages. But they say, Article 20 does not so much contain the confession of the princes and the cities as the justification of the preacher's teaching. Basically, the article on good works says nothing about what they actually teach. It just gives justification for why they teach it. And they say, this has been rejected and condemned long ago, even in the time of Augustine, that good works do not merit salvation and do not help to cover sins. And when we get to Article 20, well, especially also in Article 4 of the Apology, we have that brought in as well. So now we move into one of the most controversial articles 
for the Roman Catholics. And even today, this is a major sticking point above pretty much anything else between Catholics and anybody else that's not Catholic. Article 21 on the invocation of the saints. They say this is to be utterly rejected that we cannot call upon the saints because there have been at least six previous condemnations on the church against those who refuse to call upon the saints. It's very telling because you have the ancient church who has story after story of martyrs going to their deaths because they would not offer sacrifices or praises to Caesar. But now we want to say we must offer prayers for the saints. And they put the basis in John chapter 12, verse 26, where Jesus says, If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. And they go on to say, If God the Father honors these people for their great things, what should we normal human beings do? Should we do any less? And so they go into instances from the scriptures. Job chapter 42, where God restores double back to Job when he prayed for his friends, and God forgave them their sins. Or Barak chapter 3 verse 4, where Barak prays, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, hear the prayer of the dead of Israel and of the sons who have sinned against you, who have not obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, so calamities have clung to us. In the Orthodox Study Bible, they link this passage to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man in Hades is actually interceding with Abraham to send Lazarus back to his brothers so that they would not come into the endless torment. They show this as the fact that the dead can actually intercede for us and know what is going on here. The biggest point they make on this from the Catechism is 2 Maccabees 15.14. Onius, the high priest during the Maccabean revolt, then spoke to Judas Maccabeus. This is Jeremiah, the prophet of God, a man who loves his brothers and prays fervently for the people and the holy city. Of course, this is roughly 400 years after Jeremiah has died. So they make the big deal that Jeremiah, even while dead, is still interceding for the Israelites and for Jerusalem. And then you have Revelation chapter 5 and 8, where the bowls of the incense that is said to be the prayers of the saints are there. And this goes into multiple different ways. You could say, well, these are the prayers that the 24 elders are praying as they are sitting before the throne, having already been dead. Or you have the prayers of the church on earth interceding for us. Lutherans tend more towards that second one, that the prayers of the saints in Revelation are the ones of the saints on earth, not those who are in heaven. There is no need to symbolize and represent their prayers. They are right there physically, or well, I guess I should say spiritually, giving their praises before the throne in heaven. They also go on to clarify what they mean by intercession and mediation. They do clarify that there is only one mediator of redemption, that being Jesus Christ. But there are many, many mediators of intercession. 
and that's what each of the saints are called on to do once they are arrived once they arrive into heaven is to be a mediator of intercession because apparently Jesus is not able to be the mediator and intercede for us before the Father as he has promised to do himself. And I want to read the last paragraph of the confutation from Article 21. Having considered all of these matters carefully, we request of the princes in the cities that they reject this part of their confession. We ask that they come into agreement with the Holy Universal and Orthodox Church and believe and confess what the entire Christian world believes and confesses regarding the veneration and intercession of the saints. For this teaching has been in all the churches since the time of Augustine who said, The Christian people celebrates the memory of the martyrs with great devotion and follows their example in order that the community may partake in their merits and be helped by their prayers. Now this quote from Augustine is from his Against Faustus and does mention their prayers. But truly, as Melanchthon gave in the Augsburg Confession in the first place, he also uses that. He dropped off the prayers part. But it's because we do still celebrate the saints who have gone before us. We do follow their examples as it is according to our vocation. But most of all, we celebrate their faith. Not what kind of honor they have in heaven, but the faith that they have. The same faith we have, so that we too may one day join their ranks in heaven. As we move now into the confutation of the second part of the confession from Articles 22 through 28, there will be a lot more reading of the confutation. First of all, just so we have their own words, but second, even the computation itself was not published for another 30 or 40 years after the Augsburg Confession. In fact, it has never actually been officially accepted as a doctrinal statement of the Roman Catholic Church. When Melanchthon writes the Apology, he's having to rely on notes that were hastily taken and written down during the reading of the computation so that he might be able to better defend the Lutheran understanding. So now we move into Article 22 on both kinds in the Mass, having both the wafer and the wine. They say this is an abomination because Acts 2.42, Acts 20 verse 7, Luke 24, verses 30 to 31, and Ignatius writing to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 20 of that letter, only mention the bread, because the Lord's Supper is often called the breaking of the bread in the Scriptures. They also go on to say there has always been a distinction between lay and priestly communion. They are willing to accept the fact that at one point both kinds were given. It is true that in the early days of the church, both forms were given to the laity, for they were free to commune under one or both forms. However, because of many dangers, this custom has been discontinued. When one considers the great number of people, among whom are the old, young, tremulous, weak, and mentally impaired, great care must be taken so that the sacrament is not violated by the spilling of the wine. The large number of people also makes it difficult to administer both forms because the wine, 
when kept for a long time, would go sour and cause nausea or vomiting in those receiving it. It could also not be taken to the sick without dangerous spilling. For these and other reasons, the churches, whose custom has been to commune in both kinds, were led, undoubtedly by the Holy Spirit, to give only the bread. This was based on the reasoning that the whole Christ is under each kind and is no less received under one kind than under two. This was decreed by the highly respected Council of Constance and the Senate of Basil. We'll see these two coming up over and over again in these last few articles. Because everything was considered before Council of Trent by the Council of Constance and the Senate of Basel. Absolute forbiddance finally came about because of Jan Hus. He was one of the first ones in Bohemia to then say, no, we will take in both kinds. So the church drew back and said, no, you must, no, you must only give the bread. And in fact, giving harsh penalties to priests who would give in both kinds. They go on to say, The arguments that our opponents put forth are not convincing. For while Christ did institute both forms of the sacrament, nowhere in the Gospels does it say that he commanded the laity to receive both forms. The words in Matthew 26, 27, Drink of it, all of you, were directed to the twelve apostles who were priests. Mark makes this clear when he says, and all of them drank from it, Mark 14, 23. This has never been seen to apply to the laity. The custom of giving both forms to the laity has never existed in the entire church. At most, it is possible to say that this practice occurred among the Corinthians, the Carthaginians, and in a few other churches. Basically, the reason why we don't have both kinds being given in the Catholic Church under Rome in the 16th century is because it's never been agreed upon everywhere to do that. Therefore, it is not Catholic or universal. This brings to the point, having been to a friend's daughter's First Communion this past weekend, the priest said normally they would give both kinds in First Communion, but because of COVID, they were not giving the wine. Because, of course, it was only in the chalice, because the Catholic Church, thankfully, has never surrendered to the individual cup family. Putting all that aside, because that's a completely different discussion for another time, I'm not sure when exactly that became a point where even just First Communion, maybe the only time it is ever given in both kinds to people that they accept, but it is an option in churches now. And I am not exactly sure when that came about. Probably Vatican II, but I can't say for certain on that. Now we move into Article 23 on the marriage of the priest. The Second Council of Carthage in 390 demonstrates the ancient origin of priestly celibacy. Married priests were allowed because of priest shortage. Might we be turning a corner now? Because they are saying that we have tri-parishes and quad-parishes in the Roman Catholic Church because of a shortage of priests. Will Pope Francis or will the next Pope allow married priests to join? Maybe they won't be able to be promoted up to bishop or archbishop or anything, but parish priests? Maybe. I certainly hope so. But 
that of course is in the Pope's hands. And we will have to see how that unfolds. Because it is a papal decision from Pope Sericius, who was Pope from 385 to 399, in the few years before and after the Second Council of Carthage, that declared mandatory priestly celibacy. The married priest must also be celibate and not have sexual relations with their wives, but single priests could not seek to be married. We have a few paragraphs here that basically show from their perspective that priestly celibacy was foreshadowed and even commanded in the Old Testament. They say, It should also be noted that the priests of the Old Law were separated from their wives at the time of their duty in the temple, as can be seen in the case of Zechariah, Luke 1, verses 5-25. through 25. Since the priests of the New Law must always be engaged in ministry, it follows that they should be celibate. Paul also taught that married people should not refrain from conjugal relationships except for a time when they give themselves to prayer, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Since a priest ought to always pray, he should always be celibate. These arguments have been cited previously in the writings of Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine. Furthermore, St. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32-34. Therefore, let a priest who wishes to continually please God flee from the cares of marriage and not look back, as was the case with Lot's wife. Genesis 19:26. Priestly celibacy was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. For example, Moses commanded those who were to receive the law not to approach their wives until the third day, Exodus 19.15. How much more then should priests who receive Christ as legislator, Lord, and Savior refrain from taking wives? The priests of the Old Testament were commanded to wear clothes over their thighs so as not to disclose their shameful flesh, Exodus 28.42. Bede noted that this was a symbol that priests in the future would be celibate. Also Ahimelech. When he was about to give the blessed bread to the servants of David, first asked whether they had kept away from women. David answered that they had for three days, 1 Samuel 21, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, those who received the living bread that came down from heaven, John 6, 51, should also remain pure. Those who ate the Passover lamb had their loins girded, Exodus 12, 11. How much more should those who eat our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, gird their lives with celibacy, just as the Lord commanded? Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, Isaiah 52.11. The Lord also said, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, Leviticus 19.2. Therefore let the priests serve God in holiness and righteousness all their days, Luke 1.74. They go on to say that any idea of having priestly marriage is the Jovinian heresy which was condemned at the end of the 4th century, and really situated around Rome. And so to help clarify the Jovinian heresy and the aspect of the Wittenberg reformers, they write, They also twist the teaching of St. Paul as if the apostle was saying, Now a bishop must be the husband of one wife, 1 Timothy 3.2, were mandating that the bishops be married. By that line of reasoning, Martin, Nicholas, Titus, John the Evangelist, and even Christ himself would not have been bishops. However, Jerome clarifies this command of St. Paul by saying it means a bishop cannot be a bigamist. The truth of this interpretation is based not only on the authority of Jerome, which ought to be honored by all Catholics, 
but also on St. Paul, who writes concerning the selection of widows, let a widow be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old and has been married only once, 1 Timothy 5.9. So what is the point behind the priest not being married? Well, Jesus wasn't married. John the Baptist wasn't married. And they go on through all the history of all these people that were not married and yet were critical in the Lord's work. Well, that's great. There is a role for single people in the church, but that does not mandate that everybody be single who wants to be in the ministry. After all, Paul says not once but twice that the bishop, the overseer, the pastor should be the husband of one wife. Not that you have to be married to be a pastor, but that you should be allowed to be married. And therefore, we have married priests outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Because even the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Christians, have married priests and have always had married priests. Priestly celibacy was only a Roman doctrine. As we move into Article 24 with the Mass, we have two major issues. The first one is Lutherans doing the Mass in German. The Roman Catholic Church, up until Vatican II, only allowed the Mass in Latin. You could not do it in the vernacular, in the language of the people. So you couldn't do it in German, English, Spanish, any other language except Latin. And they say experience teaches us that devotion is greater at Mass among Germans who do not understand Latin than among those who hear the Mass in German. So therefore, devotion is better because you're listening to it in Latin, because Latin is a higher, more evolved, more holy language than German. Honestly, as a wrestling fan, if I look at some of the videos that I do post on my Green Friday wrestling page from World Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico or All Japan, I don't really pay attention to them because, A, I don't speak Spanish or Japanese, so I don't understand them. However, I know there are some who do and might benefit from them, so I do collect them into one spot as well. But I'm not more highly devoted because it's in a different language. It actually tunes me out faster. And I do believe that is what was happening in Germany as well, which is why Luther wanted to make sure that the people knew what was going on. The second issue they had with the Lutherans, most reprehensible is the abolition in certain places of private masses. They reason that foundations with a fixed income are sought only for personal gain. However, the abrogation of these masses diminishes the worship of God, dishonors the saints, invalidates the ultimate will of the founder, robs the souls of the dead of their rights, and it steals and chills the devotion of the living. The abolition of private masses should not be tolerated. Nor is it the case, as they assume we teach, that Christ's suffering and death was on behalf of original sin, and thus the masses were instituted for the sake of actual sin. Catholics have never subscribed to this teaching, and today, if asked, would deny being taught such a thing. The truth is that the Mass does not abolish sin. Repentance is the remedy designed specifically for this malady. 
Rather, the mass abolishes the punishment owed on account of sin, supplies the satisfaction, increases grace, provides holy protection for the living, and finally brings the hope of divine consolation and aid in time of need. The mass does not forgive sins. Sure, but it provides the forgiveness of sins because you are receiving the body and blood of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. Then they move on into the fact that the priest must be clean in order to offer right sacrifices. And they quote from Malachi as the fact that God was not accepting the sacrifices in the 4th century B.C. because they were not doing them right. They were defiling the altar of the Lord. Therefore, they also point into the indelible character that was given at ordination for the priest. And another couple of paragraphs from this as we summarize Article 24 that Melanchthon really goes into and goes after in the Apology. It should also be noted that this does not contradict St. Paul, who says that by one sacrifice we are justified through Christ, Hebrews 10.10. For Paul is speaking here of the bloody sacrifice of the Lamb upon the cross. This naturally only happens once, and from it all the sacraments, especially the sacrifice of the Mass, receive their power and effectiveness. Christ was sacrificed once on the cross, shedding his blood. Today, however, he has sacrificed in the Mass without violence and in a sacramental way that is veiled in mystery and in which he does not suffer, just as he was sacrificed figuratively in the Old Testament. The sense of the word Mass itself shows that the reference is to sacrifice, since Mass means sacrifice, and received its name from the Hebrew word misbeach, altar, on account of the sacrifice received there. It has also been shown that, strictly speaking, we are justified not by faith, but by love. And when the scriptures say that we are justified by faith, this is to be understood as a living faith which works through love, Galatians 5.6. Justification occurs not only through faith, since faith is the assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1. So we have the Mass here given as a sacrifice, a bloodless, unviolent sacrifice, but still a sacrifice of our Lord once again just given its power from the once-for-all bloody sacrifice on the cross. This is the one thing that Lutherans have never been able to stomach, is that the priest is up there, having been cleansed and holified and all of that, re-offering the sacrifice of Christ. That is not what we do when we come together for the sacrament of the altar. We come together to receive the fruits of the once-for-all sacrifice. We are not offering Jesus' body and blood once again in a figurative sacramental way. We are calling upon him to send his body and blood in with the bread and wine so that we may receive it and have the assurance of our hope and the forgiveness of our sins. All right, we're going to have to put a stop in this here right now. I'm looking down at my recording and seeing that I've gone past 30 minutes now. I was wanting to try to get this in in 25, but there is so much stuff in here that I'm sure I will cover again when we get to the apology on these articles, but I want to get it out first of all. So we will pick up in article 25 of the confutation next month, and we'll just push the apology back another month. So until next week, when we have Pro Wrestling America once again, the American Heavyweight and Tag Team Title Tournaments.
and then two weeks we have digging deeper into the tabernacle, the furnishings on the inside. This is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments about what you have heard on Wrestling With Theology, send an email to wrestlingwiththeology at gmail.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you have subscribed so it will show up automatically on your podcast app. Please also share the podcast so that more may be equipped to wrestle with theology.